Welcome to episode 105 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and Paper Making Masterclasses here in the studio and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today I'm talking with Margaret Rhine, who for the past 47 years has been involved full-time in the art and craft of making paper by hand at her studio, Terrapin Paper Mill, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Rhine has exhibited her paper collages in galleries and craft shows around the country, and has taught many workshops in papermaking and book arts to adults and children. Over the years, she has made thousands of sheets of handmade paper, experimenting with a variety of fibers, shapes, colors, and textures in two- and three-dimensional approaches. Rhine works spontaneously using colored cotton and linen pulps and combining patterned fabrics of various textures with other collage elements on the paper surface. She's inspired by plant forms, landscapes, and figurative themes, and finds that papermaking lends itself to the collage process. The base fibers in a sheet of fresh handmade paper integrate with the components she applies to its surface. By adding artifacts and autobiographical treasures, paper excels in being a platform for telling stories, capturing memories, and bringing deeper meaning to the resulting works of art. Enjoy our conversation. Margaret Ryan, welcome to Paper Talk. Well, thank you, Helen. It's been such an exciting thing to think about this review of my life in paper. So I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to chatting. And uh, tell me about... I think you've you're Cincinnati born and bred and still there. Um, that, actually, I you... grew up in a town outside of Cincinnati. Okay. It's yeah. about an hour away in in Goshen, Ohio. Um, uh, big family. There were uh, I had six sisters and two brothers, and wow. um, we kind of lived in the country, but we weren't really farmers or anything like that. I, my family really didn't know anything about gardening. I, um, we went to the Catholic school, which was in another town away. I was thinking about that bus rides back and forth to school, Mm -hmm. quite a long distance. Um, but then I went to, uh, the public high school in Goshen and that's where I really got more engaged in thinking about art. I, um, I had never had a study hall in my life. My freshman year, they put me in two study halls. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. And then the very first day, someone came in and made an announcement. We have a new uh, art program and an art teacher. Did anybody want to take art? And of course, I raised my hand to get out of that study hall. And it was just such a wonderful experience. I took art all four years. Um, Mrs. Rose Vi was the teacher. It was her first teaching job. She was so enthusiastic. She was so encouraging of us exploring so many different types of media. I was thinking, I even made like a clay head of myself, mm-hmm. made the plaster mold, did a concrete casting of it. It's in my garden. Wow. I mean, those are kind of interesting things to be able to even think about um, at a high school level. But it really got me started on that pathway and looking at colleges that had art programs that had more to do with um, textiles. I wanted to use my hands. I didn't only want to be a painter or do drawing, but they had, uh, I went to Edgecliff College in Cincinnati, a very small liberal art school. um, And the coolest thing was the art building was a mansion a very Mm. old stone like a castle that you had your classes in all these rooms it used to be uh the emory estate and um the emory's were very uh influential people in cincinnati and um put money behind the museums and uh 
music hall, different things in, in our city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was that history kind of surrounding you as you're being creative, but they also had an amazing uh, textile program. Mrs. Jeanette McMillan, uh, we were in the basement and it was filled with looms, big looms, small mm -hmm. looms. We had a whole uh, dye area so we could do batik. Um, I don't think I really learned spinning there, but I did get into that later. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I tended to do more sculptural things from the get-go. And I would be doing three-dimensional macrame was very popular then. Oh, yeah. Um, and and it was there that I met um, Michael Dorsa, who came only because he seemed to want to do printmaking. And so when I was taking printmaking, that's when I met him. And we ended up developing a mutual love of paper. You know, what are we printing on? Right. Who even thought about you could make your own paper? And Michael really did a deep dive into that more. And I was more into fibers and wool and cotton to do weaving and making textiles. But we um, we decided that it would be something we would like to pursue more in it was at that time, this was like 75, there wasn't a lot of information on how do you make paper by yourself? Right. What kind of equipment do you use? Mm -hmm. And uh, somehow Michael made a lot of connections, found out about Twin Rocker. Mm -hmm. um, well, there was, uh, it's called Craft Summer at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, which was a very early craft summer program. And um so Michael took a, a workshop with Catherine and Howard Clark mm. on basic paper making, mm -hmm. and I took one with uh, Catherine Lipke on sculptural approaches to paper making. So it kind of got us more curious, and I know that we went on a trip to New York City to visit Douglas Howell because Michael had heard he was looking for assistants, uh, assistant apprentices, and. Mm -hmm. um, I can have very strong memories of visiting his studio. Mm -hmm. He was a very uh, unusual person for me at that time in my life, you know, and very opinionated and had very particular uh, ways that you had to make paper uh -huh. and how you had to beat the paper. And uh -huh. you could only use linen and, you know, don't use this or don't do that because that was his methodology. But, um, okay. I want to insert here. Yeah. So, Douglas Howell, I interviewed his daughter on Paper Talk. So listeners, if you're interested in hearing more about Douglas, you can listen to that episode. And I wanted to ask about the the workshops you took um, with Catherine and, um, and then Catherine and Howard. Uh, did they have like did they travel with papermaking equipment or what what did you glean about equipment at that point? What was interesting, and I think the reason they were able to do this at, at Miami University is they had a paper tech department. So oh, they had okay. a big beater there. Okay. I'm not sure if they processed the pulp there or if they brought it with them mm -hmm. from Twin Rocker. Mm -hmm. But um, that wasn't part of the what – what, in my class, we just – the pulp showed up and we were learning how to form it and how to put it over different forms to cast the paper. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm not really sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anymore in, in regards to that. But it it also opened our doors to um, finding Tim Barrett because he was going around doing Japanese paper making workshops in different parts of the country. So we had him through. I think I, we think it was the Sensei Art Museum gave a, a demo and talk and he stayed here with us. And oh, OK. Um, such an inspiring person. <laughs> and I have yeah. his book and. And um, he does kind of come back and forth into my life through different times mm -hmm. that we'll, we'll get to. But um, mm -hmm. we, um, Michael always wanted to do a production mill. He wanted to make a lot of paper. He wanted to have artists come in and work with us. So in addition to paper making, we also um, got a Vandercook proof press. We got a Washington hand press. We got a lot of type. We... Um, he really loved book binding. We all we both love books. And mm -hmm. so he wanted to learn how to do book binding and, and basically was self-taught in a lot of that as well. Uh-huh. And so, you and then Michael was your first husband. We'll say right. that. So we'll Michael say, and I, yeah. yeah, we got um married. We we 
found a place that had a big four car a garage with an older building used to be a fruit and vegetable vendors garage behind their house uh-huh. in uh, in um Westwood the community of Cincinnati and we turned it into a paper mill we kind of partitioned off um different rooms one was a drying room with like loft drying kind of ideas and then one was a beater room and then the other was our uh, our studio where we would make the paper and we made all of our own molds and decals because we didn't even know where you could buy them at that time mm-hmm. but there were plans and things online that we could refer to from historical molds and decals and um Lee Scott McDonald was very uh helpful because he was making molds and decals at the time and had the materials that he would sell you if you wanted to make your own so oh, we could right. buy the laid um copper screening and brass screens from him right and, um and then you you got a press and um a beater uh, y- yeah so um when michael had taken that class with howard that was about the same time that howard clark was starting to build uh paper making equipment for other paper makers because there wasn't really much out there right. there were valley valley beaters which weren't easy to come by mm-hmm. so howard designed uh like a 3 pound beater um and also a paper press that was the base of the presses Dake company but then he designed a whole platen system with springs that would return it back up and um yeah so we got like the very first press that he did cuz he made he made absolutely plaques on it and it told the history that is attached to the equipment uh and I have one I have, one. I have, have one? the one he built for Peggy Prentice yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and I, I it makes me curious like I wonder how many he built over right. his time I was trying to remember which number mine is because I haven't looked at it in a while it's maybe number eight yeah. so at least eight but yeah I'm yeah sure. yeah I'm sure. so um yeah and, and our beater was number three so that was I mean you you can't be a production mill if you don't have the equipment so right. that was like um really instrumental and really appreciate Howard's uh, efforts on that behalf to kind of spread paper making to other people around the country. Right, right. And so um so did you become a production mill and what were you what were you making and how were you getting it out into the world? Um we mostly made uh stationery. Mm-hmm. So we would have um 18 by 24 inch molden decals, but with subdivided decals that would make six by nine papers. And then we'd have envelope decals that would make four envelopes at a time on the same equipment. And mm-hmm. then we would assemble these um, paper and envelopes into packets that we made out of bigger sheets of our paper. And we would wholesale them through the big craft shows in the country, uh, American Craft Council at Rhinebeck and Baltimore mm-hmm. and uh, Cincinnati. Uh, the Cincinnati Craft Guild was very instrumental early in our lives because there was a whole community of artists, craftsmen here. And also at our state level, the Ohio Designer Craftsmen, we were involved in that from the beginning. Mm-hmm. They had a big craft show once a year here in, in town that we were part of from the beginning. So that's sort of how we we didn't know about shops around the country until we like did the wholesale show at Baltimore. And then I mean we were making I was making and and then Elaine Levy who joined us um for a few years was really instrumental in helping make production paper in her summertime. She was a, a high school art teacher during the year school okay. year. Michael had a full-time other job because uh-huh. it's really hard as an artist paper maker to make your living doing that, especially when you're getting established. Mm-hmm. So I've always really appreciated that he was willing to do that. And then on the other time he would be working on printing or making uh, bindings and, and also showing those things at shows around the country. Right. Did you have like a, a annual cycle? where you were making paper certain times, going to show certain times, or was it all pretty? It was all year round. Yeah. yeah, But it tended, 
because of the products we're making are more gift, we would tend to do more shows in the fall mm -hmm. for the Christmas um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. buying season. And at the same time, we I started giving workshops in paper making. Um, I also gave workshops in um, marbling. I had taken a class with Don Guillaume. He had come to Cincinnati and I've always been into patterns and marbling is just mm. the most perfect way to, to, to make patterns and, and uh, that can always be different, but you can also make very similar ones if you're that type of person, which I'm not. I've always been more of an expressionist artist and what will happen if I do this versus right. let me do this again and again and again. That that was never really me. Although in production paper, when you're making a product, you had to have similarities. But at the same time, you wanted it to be seen as handmade, mm -hmm. you know, that it had unique characteristics in, in the sheets. Like in our stationery, we, we put mica early on in our pink paper, which the, was pink because we had cloth from Deva that was pink raspberry colored. We put um, feathers, blue dyed little feathers floating in our sky papers. So there were different things. We put cattail seeds in our beige papers because people like to have those natural elements mm -hmm. that they could relate to seen in completely different ways. Like, well, who would think about cattail seeds in paper, but it would look very like a, almost like a, what you see as crackers today. When you see that surface of like little tiny sesame seeds in paper, that's kind of a similarity to what cattail seeds might look like, but a little smaller scale. Right. We, right. So tell me about the fiber where you got your fiber for your paper. Okay, so we bought bales of uh, cotton half stuff and linters from Cheney Pulp, which was mm -hmm. up in Franklin, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we also then would get a, a lot of our materials from Twin Rocker mm -hmm. and also uh, use their internal sizing agent and pigments from, from Twin Rocker. Mm -hmm. Sometimes from Carriage House, uh, we would get pigments as well. Um, and then... I was thinking about all the ways fabric has come to me mm -hmm. um, besides the Deva cotton clothing company, giving me their scraps. There was a local frame company that would um, cover mats with beautiful linen and silk and then cut away the window and around the edges wow. and then had bags of that. So then I had silk that I could experiment with making paper and then, um, and linen from that as well. I had another woman wrote to me, her grandfather had a bit of an architect and in the old days they would do it on beautiful, very fine linen papers, white linen. And um, she was downsizing and she gave the best ones to like the historical society, but ones that were sort of worn. She said, I'm going to package these up. Can you make some paper and share back some with me and then do whatever mm -hmm. you want with the rest? Mm -hmm. So I just I, I, I save everybody's letters through all these years. So I've been going through that, getting ready for, to talk to you. And mm -hmm. here's an envelope from Mrs. Archibald. And inside it is one of those folded up architectural drawings. There's just a few lines, but the fabric itself is just so beautiful. Oh, and then yeah. I'm thinking... I kind of remember that paper now, you know, like yeah. I, whenever we made paper, we would save what we call our archives. We'd always save a piece of paper. So uh -huh. I have boxes of that, but I wasn't that great on record keeping. It wasn't that important to me. I just wanted to have the material. What right. did I make? Mm -hmm. And then every time when I got into making um, all the different pattern papers with all the dried plant materials or fabrics or ribbons or paper scraps or, you know, whatever collage materials spoke to me when I, I would usually make 18 by 24 sheets. And then when I would cut them down to make no cards, I always kept one. Mm. So I would have a whole, and then at one point I had so many, I thought I'm going to make a book of the blue samples. It's called blue sample book, but I did it as a, um, it's a flag book. So mm -hmm. there's three of them stacked you know, they're four by six cards. Okay. And yeah. then on a big accordion. So when you open this thing up, you see all these different plant materials in a uh. blue format. And, um, and it's really, and I did it on smaller scale. I've done smaller versions of that, that 
I would take to show the children at school because I would later on when I um, got more involved in doing workshops or projects with my children later on, we would make book projects and I always would bring examples for them to touch and feel. Right, right. Okay, so let's let's circle back to, um, so did you have like accounts that would reorder from you through these shows you did? And- yeah. Yeah, yeah, different mm-hmm. galleries around the country, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, crafts, craft shops mostly. Yeah, and, did, and you did. Did you do retail events as well? Holiday, right. certainly. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. I mean, this was really pre- before the internet. Yeah. Before websites, before things like that. So that wasn't any way until recently that I even started using as a marketing tool. But right. um, yeah, so you had to go out and find those mm-hmm. customers mm-hmm. and. Um, mm-hmm and try to do that. Right. And then um, let's, you mentioned your, uh, I don't know what word you use, your your collage based works. So, Mm -hmm. so eventually you and Michael split up and we split up and we, I kept the paper making uh, Mm -hmm. equipment and the house where the paper mill studio is. And then he moved all of the printing and binding equipment to another location. And we're still very close friends. I just Mm -hmm. talked to him yesterday. I keep saying, Michael, remember when we did this or, you know, and, um, and he has gone on to do all kinds of things too, uh, with enameling and making books and printing. And so he's had a very full life, uh, in art as well. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, so we split up in about, um, 83, 82. And then I, another art friend of mine, Stuart Golder, and I ended up getting close and then uh, getting married. And he, he's an amazing artist. Um, He also has his studio here at home. And he designed miniature looms. I was looking at his woven gold strands. Yeah. 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 Amazing. um, So he, you know, he first started out like all of us start out in the beginning, just using uh, lesser price materials. So working with copper and then silver and then working up to as long as you're spending this much time doing the process, let's go for gold and Mm -hmm. working with all the different colors of 18 karat. So he would do traditionally pattern weaves. And also would uh, invent weaves by twisting and manipulating the wires prior to weaving. And then he was a perfectionist, meticulous craftsman. It would make incredible jewelry. Mm -hmm. And also some whole line of beautiful boxes that had magical ways of opening. Mm. And um, he did shows. So then we had children. We Mm -hmm. had two, uh, two boys. And when, once we had children, it was very hard for us both to be on the road because he also was doing craft wow, shows right. and I was helping him as well. But um, it, it's just too hard. I mean, it, it, because of the type of work that he did, he and how unique it was, he got into the best shows in the country. Mm-hmm. So he was doing a lot of traveling around different parts of California, Texas, Florida. So but he he, don't, he only did about five or six shows a year and okay. then would work here at home. And then he um, he also got other people to come on and help him through the mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. So we've always had a lot of artists, creative people in and out of our studios helping mm-hmm. us both. Um, it's better, I think, to have that creative energy around you because mm-hmm. it is isolating to be an artist on your own. Right. And I think that's why... I also belong to so many different groups, like mm-hmm. the Ohio uh, designer craftsmen from the very beginning. And then I was actually a board member for a few years recently because I felt like it was time for me to give back, even though I had to drive all the way to Columbus for meetings. But then COVID hit and then we just did mm-hmm. Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, that whole way of trying to people spent time and energy teaching me and I would love to do that for other people. And it's very rewarding. Um, I have a lot of uh, different younger students. Uh, I had a group from um, uh, UC DAP program who came over and they wanted to make their own paper. They knew nothing about it. So I 
took them through plant materials. We only had four sessions, you know, so we had to do like intensive and -hmm. they wanted them to make the paper, make their own equipment and make products. But I haven't gotten to see, I saw like a little bit, but I would love to see what else they did, but they're doing it along with being full-time students and other things. So it was pretty fractured way of learning. And it'll be interesting to see if any of them continues in that direction, but at least right. they've been exposed to it. Right. And how do you, how do you connect with, uh, do you have any regular teaching gigs or are they just sort of organic? No, I never really yeah. was mm-hmm. on a faculty. It was mm-hmm. really, I enjoyed just doing it every once in a while. Mm-hmm. I was at one point, the the Taft Museum here in Cincinnati had a the artist reaching classrooms program. And I was in that for about three or four years okay. where I would have uh, a certain agenda where I would go in and either demonstrate or have enough. So each student can make a quick sheet of paper and decorate it a little bit. Um, and that was fun to do, but it, it's a lot of work. You do yeah. yeah, having to bring in all the equipment to contain water in a normal classroom. Yeah. Lots of trays yeah. and, sponges and uh, but I have all that I have a traveling press I have um, small molds and decals and lots of felts and everything that can can go on the road if I need to right now you mentioned um, Mildred Fisher in the in our correspondence Mm -hmm. prior to this and I wanted you to just talk a little bit about her Um, oh my gosh Mildred Fisher she was um I first met her, she was a professor at the University of Cincinnati in the design department. And um, she lived here in Cincinnati. She was um, a single older woman when I met her, but she had already been to Japan. She had studied with um, Ishiro Abe, one of the national Mm -hmm. treasures of paper Mm -hmm. making. And and, um, I have a bunch of slides and pictures from that time in her life. She had a very unique way. She also did uh, had was in weaving and textile, so we had that in common. Okay. She had a big loom. She had gone to like um, the different Scandinavian countries and spent time there learning their processes of weaving. So she did most of her weaving in um, in linen, mm. and so she would save all of her linen thrums, the the parts that when you're cutting a piece off the loom, any threads, any selvages, and she would soak them in buckets of rainwater in her basement mm-hmm. for years. And then and then she had her beater was Elmer Garrett. You might have heard of him. No. He was an early paper maker person from up. It was either, I know it's on the East Coast. Uh-huh. And if you just Google him, there's been articles and things about okay. it. He he's he built this beater for her that it was very odd in that it was made out of like copper or something. So it tended huh. to have chemical reactions with moisture and water over time. Mm-hmm. But she and it and it had sharp blades. It's not like the ones like what that Howard mm. made where it's flat and it's sort right. of pushing water into the cells. This is more still cutting, more like a kitchen blender idea. But all of her pieces, she did artwork then, um, lots of threadiness to her images, very abstract. She was very much still a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, when she um, passed away, her she had no children, but her niece out in California, who was a professor, knew about me. And mm-hmm. she said, I want Peg to have all of her papermaking archives and books. So I have this. So whenever mm-hmm. I would give a workshop, I would bring out the Mildred Fisher box to show people oh. to say, this woman needs to be remembered. Yeah. And then I also wrote an article about her in, in the Hand Papermaking magazine because she was really a pioneer in making art with paper mm-hmm. uh, in our country. Mm-hmm. And people need to know about her. Oh yeah, yeah. I I had forgotten about that article and didn't really know much about her. So I'm really glad we're bringing her up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This episode of Paper Talk is sponsored by the Redcliffe Paper Retreat, an annual retreat held at Helen Hebert's studio in the heart of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in late August. Enjoy a peaceful, creative week in the tiny hamlet of Redcliffe, surrounded by mountains, the river, and aspen trees. 
Experiment with several techniques as you create a variety of paper objects that will intrigue your eyes and illuminate your spirit. All levels of art experience are invited. The 2023 retreat theme is paper panels. Come explore a variety of papers that can be made by hand, cut, folded, stitched, and assembled in a variety of ways to create books, wall hangings, sculpture, lighting, and more. Explore these ideas as you create unique paper objects with a dozen like-minded creatives. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com backslash red-cliff-paper-retreat. So as you were raising your children, what kind of work were you making then? And this was uh, late 80s. Right. Um, 80s, 90s. Yeah. So um, I was still always doing some figurative artwork. I've always Mm -hmm. done a lot of faces in the paper pulp Mm -hmm. and using different threads and materials to create and fabrics. And then I also have always loved gardening. So Mm -hmm. a lot of my images center around uh, floral gardens, things that you want to look at and it helps take you away from whatever your troubles are of the day. Mm -hmm. I always kind of think like I want to escape into my artwork and I want other people, the viewer, to be able to want to go there and look at it and keep looking at it and find new things. So then that kind of led me into using a lot more of the natural materials. I, I didn't do many artworks with them because I know that they're ephemeral Mm -hmm. and that they may not last for a long time, but I felt I could always do note cards Mm -hmm. and, and have the pleasure of making those papers and sharing them and knowing that people valued them and would make, write beautiful messages to give to other people and then they would cherish and value those. So I, I I didn't mind that they may not last hundreds of years, but for artwork, I felt I wasn't, sometimes I would do it because I just had to do it. It was so beautiful. And I have some of those pieces, but mostly I was trying to do things that I knew would stay pretty much the way I had originally intended them to, to stay natural materials will eventually fade with time. So they'll still have the shapes and the forms and the design that way, but they'll just become more muted with the Mm -hmm. color over time. Even though I, I use, I dip everything or I layer, I do a lot of watered down Elmer's glue Mm -hmm. on the formed paper sheet before I lay everything down. So So I want to talk about the process. Let's go a little more because you really, okay. Your papers are just gorgeous. And I featured a couple of them in my recent book, The Art of Papercraft. Which um, is so wonderful to be part of your book. Thank you <laughs> thank for you. that. Yeah. And um, these are just stunning viewers. And we'll put some uh, images in the viewers, listeners. We'll put some in the show notes. Um, so, yeah, take me through creating a sheet. And I think you have... You have uh, gatherings or people come help you and you you must have uh, collections like do you dry the materials first or oh yeah, you have yeah, to dry yeah, everything yeah yeah. If you don't dry it, then they're going to have more of a tendency to mold mm-hmm. and also the color isn't going to be as color fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I and when you harvest natural materials, you need to do it when there's no dew or rain or moisture. So later afternoon, dry it uh-huh. out. Um, and then you need to put them in absorbent paper. So there used to be phone books <laughs> when right. people had those kind of phones. And I have a lot of those. But I also have um, blotters between corrugated cardboard in boxes that I can cinch up so that they're uh. they, they keep pressure on them so they dry flat. It's better if things are flat because then more of the surface is attaching to the fibers and the glue mm-hmm. and bonds better. Because when you're cutting through, like I'm making 18 by 24 inch sheets, when I cut through, you don't want the pieces to pop up. Things still right. do. Right. And I do spend a lot of time gluing things back down. Mm-hmm. It's something I do while watching TV because I'm like, mm-hmm. I want to make sure it's going to stay intact. Right. But um, some plant materials just, you could put a ton of glue on in the paper wet stage and they still, they're so slick and shiny. They just don't hold. But um, right. 
So they're not you, bonding to right. The so fiber. you either decide yeah. don't use this, or you're you're going to spend extra time because they're worth using for the visual uh, beauty they bring to the paper. Right, right. So you're making an eighteen by twenty four inch base sheet mm -hmm. that you oh, could. So yeah. And so then, let me say say yeah. about that. For years, because I came from making traditional sheets of paper, I had a vat filled with pulp. You'd go in, you'd pick up a single sheet at a time and mm -hmm. pass it off to the couture person. And you just, you know, you had two, two uh, molds and a decal. So you could just keep going all day. But I went to a uh, paper book intensive at LaPorte, Indiana. And um, I think this was maybe 2009 or something. What happened was, my sister Mary, who had been a, a, a math teacher all her life, never had her own children. She passed away early from cancer mm -hmm. and she gave each of her siblings a thousand dollars in her will to do whatever they wanted to do for some kind of creative effort. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. I went to mm -hmm. paper book intensive while there I was taking um, a class from um, Tom Balbo from um, the Morgan yeah. on because I, I've known him for years. I just wanted to see, like, you could choose, you get to choose three classes right. and you don't always get what you want, but I was really happy to get that one. But the only funny thing was it was outside under trees that were shedding the entire time into the vats. Uh -huh. So whether you wanted to make paper with natural inclusions or not, it was happening. Uh -huh. But I learned there the trick of using the plastic bag and turning a, a decal box which I'd been had been using with a whole ingenious system that we had come up with where you pushed on a foot pedal. We went from forming sheets and then doing the deckle box because making bigger sheets is hard on your back a yeah. long time. Mm -hmm. So using a, a lift system with um leverage, sure it is Mr. Mechanical. And then I would just have to put my foot down on a wooden pedal and it would lift the mold a decal box out of the water. So it was just in a vat of water. Okay. So it was pretty heavy when it's, uh, you know, 18 by 24, 22 by 30. And then, um, then I would take it all off and, and cooch it. But with the plastic bag, I just keep two pieces of wood over a vat. So the mold and decal are sitting on that and I'm lining the decal box with a, a thin plastic bag and that becomes my vat every time. So I can change every color, right? Every each fiber is different. each time, yes. but because I'm an expressionist artist, I don't care so much. And I'm using natural materials. If a little gets in, I'm, I might clean off the plastic, but usually it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But by filling that up, stirring it around, and then quickly pulling the bag out. I mean, quickly. Mm -hmm. And then because it's stationary, I can slowly shake it side to side and back and forth. You have to use a lot of water so that you get good formation. Mm -hmm. But it's a wonderful, easy way on your back to make paper. And, and larger I'm, sheets. yeah, And larger sheets. Right. And, and change the color every time, not to have to have right. a vat for that color. So that I form that sheet, cooch it. Then I usually... Um, squeegee with a sponge I mean not squeegee but just sprinkle glue watered down glue okay. on it and then I also have bottles of watered down glue mixed with a little fiber mm -hmm. so then I start just composing and this is where I can let other people help me because I can say I want you to use these four plants I form the paper for them Mm -hmm. Some people are very intimidated by this process, but once they figure out how to do it, they really love it. Yeah. And they're just sort of, I'm saying like, start with some larger components. Imagine I'm cutting this sheet up into four by six units. What makes each one interesting? You have to do that planning in your head. And um, so working from larger elements down to smaller, but throughout. So there's a pattern, there's a rhythm that your eye is traveling on with shape, color, form, texture. And um, I've made thousands, thousands of sheets that way. Okay. And it's, and then I've saved one of these little cards from each one right. with the ones that I put up, but then I sometimes sell them as individual sheets that people mm -hmm. just want to have to hang in their house or they mm -hmm. put under glass and as a, a tabletop. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just interesting what people have come to do with them. But, right. Um, and you're still selling through um, local events or do you travel anymore? 
Uh, not to do shows. Yeah. I do have done a couple shows here locally for years, and I have a website. And mm-hmm. to be honest, I'm turning seventy this year, yeah. and I, I'm, I don't need to do it. Right. So I only want to do what I want to do. Right. You know, I don't need to have to go out and t- cart things all around. It's 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 hard to do shows. Oh yeah. And you don't, and I never. I really stopped doing. I did a few outdoor shows, but paper and rain and dust and stuff don't work well, even if you're in a booth. So I really restricted myself to indoor shows. Right. Uh, and you started a, an event. Is that right? Studio right, collection. Studio yeah. collection. So yeah, I started it here at my home in my studio with five of my close women artist friends, mm-hmm. and then. I realized after a couple of years, this is too much work because my house isn't that big. I'd have to clear surfaces mm-hmm. everywhere for people to set up. So we found another location in our city, the Harmony Lodge. It was a great old building that uh, uh, different choral groups would, would that's why it was Harmony, uh, would, okay. would practice in and have performances in. But they had a big old kind of open area where it worked perfectly for so many years for us. And then we enlarged the show uh, to 10 and then to 12, and, but always women. I really just wanted to have that uh, companionship and support of each other. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it it was wonderful. And we have an amazing following. And now we had this year, we had to move all the buildings keep closing down or somebody uh-huh. buys them. So now we had to move to a new location this year, uh, this past year and expanded even more. And it'll be uh, even a few more next year. So we're trying to invite newer, new women, younger artists, different mm-hmm. uh, ethnicities, just trying to expand who gets to be seen and who gets to have the opportunity for people to find them as artists. And is this um, a holiday, a holiday it's, related yeah, event? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Uh, always like uh, close to Thanksgiving. Okay. So yeah, it's um, it's a holiday sale. Yeah. So anyway, it's been fantastic all these years to have that community. I'm taking a sabbatical year this year, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. But I really feel I want to do it the next year, which will be, uh, what is it, our 30th or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So um, that would be fun to do again. Right. So um, I forgot I wanted to ask you about how you dry your papers. So after and how many sheets, how many helpers do you have come and sort of what's it? What does a day look like? I really only have helpers come in this past few years when I run out of time to use the pulp in a fast Uh time and then it starts to smell a little bit Mm -hmm. and I don't like it. So, I mean, I use a lot of hydrogen peroxide quickly to try to clean it and rinse it again because I am using cotton fabrics. And I think there's something about that and the dyes that are used that tend to break down more mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seems to be just by looking and knowing over the years. Right. But um, so usually I try to do my artwork. I can't really do my own personal artwork with people there, but I can mm-hmm. do novelty papers with people. So then I, um, it's not that often, mm-hmm. you know? So it's really, um, especially like this fall to show time of year where I'm making a lot more paper and products and cards and whatever, all the different things I like books. You know, I've always made books. Mm-hmm. And I've been involved in the Cincinnati Book Art Society since its beginning. And it's it's about 30 or so years as well. So <clears throat> we've always had a bookworks exhibit every year. Mm-hmm. And it always has been an impetus for me to do like, well, what do I want to try to do this year? Because it's always something different. Sometimes um, I use my family stories as a theme for the book. Because I feel like if I'm making a book, it has to have some kind of content as well. <clears throat> So I did one. Um, my mom had had Alzheimer's mm-hmm. for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm also doing uh, printmaking at Tiger Lily Press. So okay. I took a monoprint of kind of like all the, 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 the symbols that you think of with Alzheimer's in the brain, like these plaques and tangles. So there's right. all this type of visual image. And then like grids and then con- separations of design because – our thoughts get separated into these little things. We can't access them anymore. And that I had just a few 
words that I typed out on the computer and would tape would put in that had to to say what is Alzheimer's in the world and what is it to my mom, mm -hmm. you know, and and how does it affect her and how does it affect us? But <clears throat> so I kind of I kind of do those kind of books. I had a book. Stewart's dad was the old fashioned a doctor that would go to people's homes uh -huh. and then in the also worked in a hospital, delivered babies. So I had his old medicine bag and then a book next to it in the exhibit. And then I had like the old stethoscope and, you know, all the things uh, yeah. that, that a doctor would have with them. And then in the book would be pictures of him and his career and what, what his life was like in addition to being a doctor. Mm. And I'm really grateful for Stuart's parents, um, Dr. Uh, Sylvan Golder and Faith Golder. They always loved art and especially Asian art mm -hmm. and had a phenomenal collection of snuff bottles and Netsuke and little items, which I think really influenced Stuart's love of making these small, oh, yeah. precious things mm -hmm. um, from having that around in his life. And also our love of Japan and being able to visit there a number of times, to make paper there, to do mm -hmm. marbling there, to visit uh, Kuratani. Our, our, so our son, and when our oldest son, when he went to college, um, went to McAllister, did a double major in Japanese and economics, uh -huh. and then did um, a study abroad year, uh, uh -huh. a semester in Japan. And so we went to visit him at the end of that time. And because he could speak and read Japanese, we were able to arrange a tour of Kortani, although it was kind of ridiculous because you know how guys don't like to ask directions. Yeah. <laughs> we're roaming around in farm fields <laughs> and where is this place? And I finally just said, you have to go up to the next house and just ask them, where is it? So we were just taking buses and you get off and I mean, we were on our own. We didn't have a tour guy. We had our son and he wasn't right. you know, giving us the right directions. But we found out we were there. It was in the area. She told us how to get told him. And we got there just in time for our tour. Oh. And it was and I'm sure they were thinking like, oh, no, these people can't speak Japanese. So the young woman was so delighted that Adam could speak with her and act as our translator, although he right. didn't really know the paper word te right. terminology. You know what you think about when you travel around the world, those 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 specific right. words. Yeah, yeah. it was wonderful. Mm. I have a similar, my son spent time in Japan. And, Me? Uh, yeah. Where, what we, part we of got Japan? to go visit. He was in Osaka. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, we yeah. have traveled through there. and Yeah. Because then Adam went back after he graduated and spent three years on a tiny little island called Kikai, oh, wow. way down south of Yakushima. Uh -huh. And um, that's where he met uh, Naho, who was a teacher there, and then they eventually got married and she moved here. Um, they live outside of Chicago. We have three wonderful little bilingual oh. grandsons and wow. I'm never going to learn Japanese at this age, but <laughs> luckily the five-year-old can do both and act as the translator for the three-year-old who does not understand what I'm telling him to do. Oh, that's funny. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I want to get to one other thing, at least. Um, you, you said you had a funny story about sweet pea vines. Right. So um, Peter and Donna Thomas have done some remarkable books uh, on papermaking. Mm -hmm. And I have been um, fortunate to have been in two of the books. And this book was on, they wanted uh, papermakers to find a material where they lived and make like 120 sheets of this paper to be used in this book on papermaking with plants. Right. And I was thinking, I hadn't done a lot of papermaking with plants at that point. I'd done some. Mm -hmm. And I was looking around thinking like, well, what do I even know? And there was there's a wonderful Finley market in Cincinnati, a farmer's market downtown and a woman who was selling plants. And we got to talking and she said, oh, I have a, a greenhouse and I raise sweet peas for the trade. Don't know who she was selling them to, but the flowers, they're beautiful oh, flowers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But she so they were like these vines growing to the ceiling in this greenhouse. And then I said, well, what do you do with the vines afterwards? And she said, well, I just compost them. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, would you mind if, if we came and got them and and made paper with them? And she thought that would be lovely. I would be love to see what that looks like. So we 
we harvested the vines. And then I remember we strung clotheslines in our driveway because I had to dry them. There was a ton of them. So yeah. we just sort of looped them over clothesline. Mm -hmm. And I invited my longtime friend, um, Maxine uh, Seelenbinder Apke, who started making paper with me and then has gone on and made a lot of her own paper here in town. Mm -hmm. um, so then her husband had a shredder chipper. So then, because we thought, how are we going to break these down? So we ran them through that. And then we had a big pot that we bought uh, to cook it outside and cook it down. And I I think we, after we cooked it, because of the nature of it, we only put it in my the Hollander beater that Howard made, but with the beater roll pretty much up. We're just trying to break up the fiber and not really shorten the fiber too much. Mm -hmm. And um made a lot of paper and you have to make a lot of paper to get 120 really oh, yeah. good ones that you would want to be representing you in a book. And the, the wonderful thing is the, the, the exchange was then each of the papermaker artists gets a copy of the book. And, and Donna um, Thomas did these beautiful mm. illustrations mm -hmm. of the plants that people use. So that's on the one page and on the other page is sort of the story and the example of the paper. So, um, it was really oh cool really yeah and that's i think it's called paper making with plants something right. like that. it's uh -huh. a, it's a limited edition book and it's beautiful and and peter thomas is going to be on the podcast in a couple of months um so did you just use the whole vine did you do any stripping of fiber or we used the vines and the leaves yeah, yeah after we it. cooked it it right. was there wasn't like an inside or outside, like, mm -hmm. you know, when you think of Kozo or any of those things where right. you're stripping off the bark and there wouldn't have been anything left. So, no, we just used the whole plant. It was a pretty fibrous paper mm -hmm. and it was an interesting kind of a limey, yellowish green color, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which, um, and you know, it wasn't, we were trying to make it as thin as we could because it had to be in a book, but at the same time, it had to be strong enough to be able to persevere. So, right. And do you have another aspect? Do you have a restraint drying system or how do you dry your paper? Okay. So early on in production, mm -hmm. we would press the papers and then we would stack them in groups of like six and then air dry them on uh, shelves with airflow in a room. Mm -hmm. But then, um, because we didn't know any other ways. And mm -hmm. Twin Rocker wasn't really wanting to share how they dried mm -hmm. paper. Right. But then we did eventually learn about restrained drying. And that's what I've been using ever since, where it's, I, I have a lot of old felts. There used to be a paper mill in Cincinnati, a production mill, Cheney. No, it wasn't Cheney. It was um, Fox River or something. Uh -huh. But anyway, that when the felts would rip or whatever they were had thrown away and michael always seemed to have find these things and then we would cut them down and i was still using those felts because they were wool beautiful mm -hmm. tight textured so they give a really smooth surface to your paper so i use those instead of blotters because blotters always warp up in a in a drying system after time and then oh, corrugated so use, double walled so you have cardboard. The double wall and then felt felt and, and then, then paper, the paper. Mm -hmm. and then another felt and, and then, then another, another corrugated right oh. and, and they're does... big enough so that i can do two uh 22 by 30s on on a layer oh wow so you have a big and what do you do you have a couple well, of no, 18 by 24 it? just one and then it's all in a plastic Mm -hmm. tarpy thing that I cinch down and keep the air to force the air through the corrugations and out the other side. So it, it takes a couple days and then it's, I take it out, but I still keep it under pressure, you know, so it slowly gets used to whatever the humidity is. Cincinnati is often right. very humid. Right. So it takes a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, what about your, your artwork? that you make do you show do you show it or i've had a number of shows mm -hmm. uh, in different places around our state um from the uh, ohio craft museum to the carnegie art center okay. yeah. to my favorite local restaurant um 
Parkside Cafe. Mm-hmm. My friend David and and Mary have this wonderful restaurant that's kind of like a mecca for art types. Mm-hmm. And then they've always supported artists and there's changing exhibits every two months on the walls. Okay. So it really helps people that don't have a way to show their work um, be able to sell it you know, and have exposure. So I've had a couple of shows there and I'm not like, um, and it's never been an intention of mine to be some big famous person. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to, to be the person in my world here that does what I find to be, connects me to others in a, in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. And I'm always the person that connects you know, especially since the internet and the ability to access information at your fingers and social media to share, I find that so life affirming. I don't dwell on the negative aspects, but I, I look for the positive, mm-hmm. like that I can go on um, Facebook and see Asao Shimura in the Philippines and what he's doing. I mean, I I've so admired his paper making through the years and have taken a class with him when it was up at the Morgan and on Kunyaku. I mean, he just such he just knows so much and he does such beautiful books. And um I just feel like I have to I'm my own museum that I'm hoping someday will become something that will people will value it as much as I do. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what you think about your collections or where they're going, but I've collected paper. Yeah. I made papers and books my entire life. I have drawers and drawers. Right. And I've sometimes have exhibits of it in local um, library display cases because I want people to see it. But in the long run, I don't know, maybe have an auction for benefiting hand paper making. It seems like paper, people do that. Right. Yeah, that is something I'm starting to think about. Uh, my archive and we were talking earlier about sheets and um i'm i'm using the internet right now to post a sheet a day from that i've just collected from other makers in fact i have some from you for the book that you sent i'll be posting that oh eventually and so i'm putting them all in a box right now for my archive whatever wherever that will end up so um on that topic though i just want to say one thing also, Bernie Vinzani, have you followed he, the paper drawer? So he's always oh, posting, right. you know, usually yes. some historical ancient watermarked money or printed document from that's done on handmade paper. So I think we do have that ability. And I, and I certainly am always posting out on my Instagram and I do uh, the Facebook Instagram for the Book Art Society, mm-hmm. our Asian Art Society I'm a member of. Um Tiger Lily Press. I, so I'm I'm trying to always connect people to those insp- inspiring things that I find so that they would be aware these exist. Don't just yeah. think of bad news. Think of other things that can happen in our world. Yeah, it's such a treasure trove. Yeah, and paper is often just thought of as yeah. a, sh- a sheet of paper. What is that? Yeah. Um, did you have some recommendations for me? You sent some links to... Um, well, you- I, I sent links to you from people that I admire, mm-hmm. people that I don't know. I mean, sometimes because I'm in the paper world, I know of them, but other people may not. You know, <clears throat> like the Japanese paper plates place, Nancy Jacoby. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, people should follow uh, S- Susan uh, Bird if they're interested in what else can fiber, what paper can become like the shifu world of making textiles with paper mm-hmm. um and you had a couple of uh, designers judith bird so back when i was doing those bigger uh craft shows in the country uh-huh. and there would be these amazing clothing makers that would dye and weave and design all their own clothing they would send me their scraps and i would make papers from oh, them I see. so i just wanted people to think about what else can we reuse that right. may be going to waste? And I'm really proud of our city. We have two different um, recycling art material places. Mm-hmm. So people can donate anything that might be used by others 
And then actually we have three places. And um, so it's, it's the prices are so much less. So artists can actually afford them. Mm -hmm. And we're reusing things that like maybe it's uh, three fourths of a tube of paint, but the rest is still good. But the person decided, and I'm never going to be a painter. Right. So, you know, to, to if those aren't in your community, maybe think about why not? And how do we get that to happen so that so much stuff doesn't go to the landfill? Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of cities have that now. And then I know some artists just get together and have material swaps, which is cool too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We have done that too. And then so, that we should do that again. That it is mm -hmm. always fun to sort of see. We do that with our book arts group. We'll have a you know, we have a wonderful studio now mm -hmm. where we can have workshops, although then, you know, COVID kind of shut us down for a few years, but we kept the space and went on zoom to do a lot of study group workshops mm -hmm. and things, but we're going to start having more workshops in place. And um, it's great to have that in a community. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has that opportunity to learn how to make a book nearby. Right. right. Okay. And I want to, let's wrap up with telling me about your security envelope collection, because I teach paper <laughs> weaving class and oh, yes. people, people have, over the couple last couple of years been showing off yeah security envelopes and i collected them last year and came up with about i don't know 12 to 14 designs just in the limited amount of mail cuz i don't get that much anymore right but Most you sent me don't. a picture of <laughs> patterns i have never seen so like green well, and blue oh, yeah. and black and yeah orange and red that's a, a work in process right now because um I can't, I have all this stuff and, and people give it to me. So, but it yeah. actually started and I have a book I made, um, yeah. an early, early book of old, old security envelopes. And I, and I use the windows in the book as um, places to put information. Uh -huh. So you could put your own message in these windows and use the edges and the rips and the tears or whatever in artful ways. But Stuart's, dad the doctor mm -hmm. always collected them and he gave them to Stuart because Stuart did tiny little pattern weavings so then right. Stuart kind of had this collection and he's saying like here I'm giving these to you and then that started me collecting them probably 20 or 30 years ago so and then his dad would always give me their security envelopes that would come in the mail because he knew I was collecting them uh -huh. so yeah I've been actually I have so many I've been sharing them with these younger book artists and collage artists and I'm saying let's see what you're going to do because there's so many things that you can do with these patterns. Right. And I've done them in, in my handmade paper, you know, as collage, just cutting strips or sh punching out shapes and putting them randomly as a design element. But uh, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you organize all of these things that you collect? Like the security envelopes? Are they just in a box or? They were. They were. <laughs> but that's, that's what I'm working. I'm cutting them all open. Okay, and then I'm yeah. gonna. I, my friend Janet Yule, she is the best organizer in my life. Uh -huh. So I'll say, Janet, I have another. She just helped me do all my recipes I've been saving, and my grandmother had saved for years. Just set them mm -hmm. all out and put them in groups. So I said I, we were gonna do patterns and colors okay. and put them in file things so that I it's easier to access and maybe I will use them right. now that I that I have them. But um, all my materials, like all those plant materials and things, uh -huh. I'm mostly using paper plates that I'm putting stacks of paper plates. And then I also have uh, some trays, plastic trays. Okay. Paper works better with plant materials because it still has the ability to transfer moisture in the air in and out. If I, and also if I, but they can't put, people can't take my paper plate and put it on a wet felt. So then I have plastic plates right. that sit under it. So when they, and I'll say, and I'll have, have them all sort of sitting on and say, just go shopping. Use mm -hmm. don't get too many because we're trying to have a flow of theme of color, shape, right, pattern. But um, then I have like um, also Stuart as the jeweler had always shipped his work in these perfectly little cardboard boxes, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I have a filing cabinet, and there's like eight of them in each one. So there's mm -hmm. plant materials that aren't necessarily super flat that are in that whole cabinet. Right. And I mm -hmm. sort of, I sort of have it by color, but not really right. sometimes. Right. 
And I do do, I do that. I try to say, okay, now I'm going to sort like, you know, every once a year, all my ferns, because I, I grow a lot of this stuff in my yard, right? you know, and I love every interesting shape. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what can it become? And also, I've been printing a lot of these natural leaves and stuff, because I do mm-hmm. like the pattern and shapes. And I like what happens with ink, water based and oil based to see and, and on handmade paper. So like too. nature printing, inking mm-hmm. up the plant and then printing it. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And using uh, gelatin plates and mm-hmm. any number of ways mm-hmm. of experimenting mm-hmm. with that. But yeah, I mean, I have them there. Some of them, if they're not appropriate for paper making, then I'll say, oh, th- th- let's print this, you know. Right, well, right. ginkgo leaves, of course, are perfect for both of those things, but... And people, mm-hmm. uh, people love ginkgo leaves. I don't know. Right. They all have this reverence for ginkgo leaves. When they see them in the cars, I can, oh, it's my favorite leaf. Yeah. And the different colors. If you harvest things at different times of the year, right, you right. can get green or gold or brown. So yeah, it always pulls you outside. That's what I loved about it. Mm-hmm. It takes you outside because some things only bloom one day. Mm-hmm. And if you, mm-hmm. if you don't catch it, you've lost it for another year. Right. So it helps me look at the world and appreciate it. Yeah. All the subtle changes and yeah. Wonderful. Uh, so what's, uh, what are you working on right now? You have Besides any organizing paper? my entire <laughs> life. I'm actually not going to be doing paper making for a bit. Although mm-hmm. I had harvested a lot of my milkweed mm-hmm. with Lizzie that you have met, um, she came over and uh, I want to make some paper in the spring with that, process okay. it. Mm-hmm. And then we saved uh, uh, the milkweed seeds in a giant bag, too, because those are so beautiful. And I I have papers that other paper makers have made through the years with different plant materials, too, as a, a resource for me to look at. Mm-hmm. the real thing and to mm-hmm. see what it feels like and mm-hmm. what did they do and how did they Cecile Webster do you know her uh-huh. she I met her at that first PBI I went to and she was teaching and then was selling some of her beautiful papers from very unusual plants so I um I bought some from her I'm always trying to support my other yeah. artist friends and people in the trade, which is probably why I have such a big collection of paper and books, because I know it's hard to make your living doing that. So I yeah. want to support yeah. them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's been a real treat having you on the show. And I look forward to posting images of some of your beautiful work in the show notes. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, Highland. It's been wonderful. Hey, paper friends, did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. There's a reason, besides the season.